IROC, Space Radio. Roger, restart. Yeah, I'm looking at it. Three, two, one. It's now time for The Space Revolution with Rick Tomlinson. Hey there, spacers. Welcome back to The Space Revolution. My name is Rick Tomlinson, and you're listening to IROC Space Radio. Tonight we have a great guest, uh, a good friend, and uh, someone I respect a lot who is uh, pioneering in space agriculture. Now, full disclaimer, my uh, venture capital company, Space Fund, has invested um in his uh, company um but we did that because of well what you're about to hear so without any further ado i'd like to uh, introduce bart womack ceo of eden grow systems hey bart hey rick how's it going brother thank you so much for having me hey good to see you man so hey um i love the green side of all of this the uh, anybody who knows me knows i'm an eco freak i'm uh uh, hardcore tree hugger, um, and uh, I, I, I don't just want to tr- hug them. I want to plant them all over the universe. Um, well, only in places where there aren't already local trees. But, um, you know, I'm a big believer in that. And, uh, you know, the the thing that sometimes people lose um, when they're talking about space is the fact uh, that, you know, you're going to have to eat. And when it comes to eating, a lot of times we'll see on the science fiction shows this sort of like, oh, you're eating some sort of bar of protein, you know, or, or something, you know, manufactured. Um, in reality, um, I think, especially once we are able to get into a more developed phase, and, and actually we're going to talk about this even early on, um, there's going to be a need for fresh food. And I think you've, you've dove in there in a, in a very big way. But uh, to start with, why don't you just tell us about Eden Grow Systems? Sure. Um, well, and also just to touch on what you were saying real quick, uh, NASA's done a lot of studies on this. And the truth is, is that human psychology is tied to in the environment and food. So when you take people out of that and you put them in a situation where they are only eating bars, you know, or, or packets of food, mental degradation, psychological degradation actually begins to occur very, very quickly. Um, Because even more so than taking us out of nature, removing our ability to eat nature, it's actually even more foundational. We can go longer times in a sterile tube environment as long as we have some real food in front of us. But you take both of those things and put them together and people start to break down very, very quickly because that is the most fundamental aspect of human biology is, is eating. We eat, we eat constantly, you know? So I just, I wanted to say that, but <clears throat> to give a little background on Eden Growth Systems, it really began in 2012 and 2013. I was just, I was at the peak of my first startup. My background was in entertainment. Um, I owned my own nightclub. I was a very popular, successful DJ. Um, I had just graduated college with a degree in uh, communications, and I was applying all of that, and uh, I had lived my dream. I had become a, a very popular superstar DJ, but, and it probably had something to do with around the same time was when my first son was born. In about 2013, I started looking around, and I started thinking about wanting to do something else. I wanted to do something that could really impact the world in a more positive way, not just impacting it from an artistic way. And 
I was doing trends research at the time. I was exiting my first startup. I was selling off my interests in that. And I was doing trends research for a family office, um, actually my family's family office. And they were asking me, well, Bart, we know that you've just now gotten out of what you were doing and what should the family be doing? What should we be looking to, to the future for our investments and what should you be looking to? And so I took the job and I started doing trends research. And I did that for about a year and a half. And I kept coming across these reports about that farming was going to be a major disruptive sector moving into the future, that farming technology. Now, this is 20, 2013. I was looking at this and I said, well, why is farming going to be a major disruptive technology sector moving into the future? We eat better than the Chinese and Roman emperors. We are feeding billions of people on the planet and just becoming more productive every year. Why would things need to change? And so I started delving deeper and deeper into that. I started finding reports from Homeland Security, NASA, British Ministry of Defense, Chase Manhattan Bank, um, even computer models done by the Club of Rome going back uh, by MIT to the 1970s. And they were all talking about the same thing, which was <clears throat> the system of food production that we had designed and optimized over the last 11,000 years while amazingly proficient at what it was doing, it was not resource efficient. It was capital efficient, which meant it was really, really good at making people money and really, really good at driving prices down and getting everything to everyone everywhere on the earth. But it was gobbling up all the resources. And that for that system to continue to function the way that it has functioned in the modern era, there would have to be another billion hectares of land, arable land, farmable land, become available by 2050. That landmass, that would be the equivalent of Brazil or Canada. The physical landmass didn't exist. So just like the MIT models showed in the 1970s, even with fertilizers, even with all of the amazing innovations we had made, there literally physically wasn't going to be enough land. And so that new and innovative types of farming and new types of farming solutions were going to have to be implemented if we continue if we wanted to continue to feed the population of the planet as we had done now there were other levels to this that was actually just the introductory level that was the first level and so i'd set off to become an expert on next generation farming technologies and i wanted to understand where all of the problems we were going to be facing in the future were going to come from so the resource allocation was actually, and the fact that there wasn't enough arable land was just the surface level. Beneath that, you start getting into food security. You start getting into the just-in-time delivery system, which these are things that we've all become, in the last couple of years, a lot more aware of the dynamics of. But this is 2013. So reading into the government reports, what we started finding was, was that the world had been set up like a giant Swiss clock. We had globalized the entire planet. We made it to where we were growing peaches in Argentina and sending them to Thailand where they were being packaged in factories and then sending them to the U.S. to be sold on store shelves. This was all possible because of cheap energy, easy capital flows, and that we had wired the whole world together after World War II. You know, essentially, the United States in a very benevolent way took over the world after World War II. And the deal that the United States made with the world said, we're going to use our Navy and we're going to guarantee shipping. Unlike the empires of old where we just protected our ships, we're going to protect everyone's ships. 
All right. We're going to make it to where every country on earth doesn't have to have a military protecting its ships because our military is going to protect free trade. All right. And that's what allowed this amazing economic development that we've had since the World War II period. But the problem was, was that as a system becomes more complex, it becomes more efficient, but it also becomes more prone to disruption. It becomes easier to disrupt. It's like a giant Swiss clock where you can take one gear over here and tweak it a little bit. And all of a sudden you have these cascading problems go throughout the entire system. So there were all these warnings saying that we were going to approach a point where A, the resources were going to begin to become harder to get. And actually the MIT models predicted that this would begin in 2020 was when those resources would become harder to get. And then through the over-optimization of the system, once disruptions in the system began, that those disruptions would begin to cause reverberations without, throughout the system that would eventually cascade into system failure. Now, most of the projections said that these kind of major system failures and resource problems wouldn't occur until 2030, but that black swan events could escalate the collapse of the system. So beginning in 2017, actually at New Worlds, one of the one of the events that, that you put on and you're involved with, and that was one of the first opportunities I had to speak publicly about this, I started publicly predicting that we didn't know where it would come from, but that it was only a matter of time before there were going to be black swan events that would trigger the beginning of the failures of this system. So we saw that the problem was coming. We understood that the system as it had functioned wasn't going to be able to continue to function that way anymore. We didn't know where it would come from. We didn't know how it was happened, but we understood the math. We could see the patterns. We could see the trends. So that was also in 2017 when I created, after a couple of years of research with some buddies, Eden Grow Systems. And what our purpose at Eden Grow Systems was to do was we wanted to create a farming system that could last the longest amount of time without resupply and be the most efficient use of its resources and the most efficient use of human and electrical energy. How did you create a farming system that would be the most resource efficient farming system ever developed? So that was when we started designing our first prototype, the LifePod. And a good mutual friend of ours, Megan Crawford, came to me and she we'd known each other for years and she had helped advise me on my first startup. And she said, Bart, you got to get this involved in space. That's the commercialization of space and space investment is about to go through the roof. So your systems and what you're describing, the problems you're trying to solve here on Earth could be directly applied to space and space technology. So it was that year at the end of 2017, I end up on a panel First time I've been on a panel, first time I've done any public speaking, farmers in space out in, out in LA. So I'm sitting there and I've hired a video crew to come in and take video of me. This is the first time I've given a presentation since college. So it's been about eight or nine years before I've had to speak in front of a group of people. So I have, you know, two cups of Starbucks coffee. I'm sitting there shaking while my, my video crew is, is getting ready to take me. And the guy that gets up in front of me gives my entire presentation. He talks about every single thing I was going to talk about. He identifies every problem that I've identified, how the technology can be utilized to solve the problems. So while I'm sitting there now panicking, trying to figure out how I'm about to change my entire presentation so it doesn't just look like I'm copying this guy, 
I get up and about half of my presentation ends up being, well, as Jeff just said. And so afterwards, I go and I find that guy out in the bar and I start talking to him. And that's how I met the real Martian, Jeff Raymond, who became my partner in Eden Grow Systems. Now, Jeff, he was a Boeing engineer and he was in charge of product development for drones at Boeing. But in his spare time, he had been tackling this problem and he had seen, as I just said, all of the same dynamics of what was coming down the road and how our best solutions were to leverage these kind of next generation technologies to deal with the problem. So Jeff and I ended up partnering. He came with me. We both saw in each other the exact person that we needed at that moment. Jeff needed someone that understood business, that understood the language of business, that had resources and had the ability to go talk to other investors about this problem so that he could focus. And what I needed was an engineer to take the designs and what we had done with LifePod and take it to the next level and begin to systematize it and make it to where we could develop a product that we could actually sell to the public. So that was when Jeff and I combined, and that was when Eden really went to the next level. And so that's what we've been doing since 2017, is we've been perfecting NASA technology. We are an official, we, well, the article comes out uh, in September of 2020, 2022, I'm sorry, uh, that we are an official NASA spinoff company, that we have taken NASA technology and we have commercialized it. And that was our goal. Our goal has been from that time to now to develop next generation farming systems that could operate at any place on earth in extreme conditions and utilize the least amount of human and electrical energy to grow food. And that's where we're at today. And in space. And in space. Well, you know, our whole thesis is, is to prove it here on earth so that it can be applied efficiently to space. Great. Excellent. Well, look, we're going to take a quick break and uh, we'll be coming back in and get into some of the, uh, how does your actual system work? Sure. And, and where you're going next with it. You're listening to IROC Space Radio. My name is Rick Tumlinson. This is the Space Revolution. And we are with Bart Womack, CEO of Eden Grow Systems. Talk to you in a minute. All right, spacers, we are back with part two of our great interview with Bart Womack, who's the CEO of Eden Grow Systems. I'm Rick Tumlinson, and you are listening to the Space Revolution here on IROC. So, Bart. We have this macro topic, pretty well covered it. We're the earth, you know, and we have to feed ourselves differently. Um, and then you brought it into space and how this overlaps. Now, you can't see this, those of you who are listening to the radio, but behind BART is this very interesting looking system, which is uh, one of their aeroponic systems. And so right now we're going to talk a little bit um, and we won't refer too much to the visual because we don't want to leave you all out. But Bart, give us a rundown. How does the system work? What makes it special? Sure. And anything else that's interesting about it. By the way, if I recall correctly, you've sized these things to be able to work well in uh, space habitat. Yeah. No, they're the... Um... One of the modalities that we created was literally designed so that it could be put on some of the new rocket dimensions so that it could be launched into space. Um, <clears throat> so that was a uh, starship. Yeah, it's one of uh, one of the standard Musk dimensions of his his rockets. Like 
when yeah. you put all of the system together, it's actually made to where it can fit in one of those and, and launch. How convenient. Yeah, very convenient. Very convenient. <laughs> almost like we planned it. It's almost yeah, like it's our convenient. engineers. <laughs> wow, such foresight and vision. That's why you're on the show, man. All right, so tell us. Tell us about the system. So what it is 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 that aeroponics is the most efficient type of delivery system for growing plants, all right? And what aeroponics is, is you can look on the tower and you see that there are these chambers that are beneath the grow decks that are these black, um, it's actually a pool liner, this heavy gauge, like kind of rubber material. And what happens is, is the plants are suspended on the deck and their roots hang down in that chamber. And what NASA discovered was by shooting a 50 parts per million mist at the roots, something really fascinating happens. The roots turn this brilliant white color, like you've never seen before, like literally just pure white, and they start functioning like lungs. That instead of pulling out of water or pulling out of dirt, the nutrients and the water that they need, they breathe them in. Now, this is, what's, this is what makes it so efficient. Because the plant is no longer having to pull the water and the nutrients out of the dirt or, or water, they uptake the nutrients and the water more efficiently. So you end up having to use less nutrient, less water. And now also because the plant is no longer having to utilize its energy to pull those nutrients and water out of another medium, it transfers that energy into growing bigger, faster, stronger healthier. So you get plants that grow faster, that use less nutrients, that use less water. So they're, it's way more resource efficient. Now, the thing is, is it's also what happens if you stop breathing? So the same thing that makes the system so strong is actually its weakness and why so many have avoided it from a commercial aspect for so long. Because you have to really know what you're doing and you have to have built in safeguards and backup systems. And, and you really need to understand how to make sure that the system never goes down. Because if it does, the plants start dying and suffering very, very quickly. But that's what aeroponics is. And we knew that if we could perfect these systems, that they would be the most utilistic system for growing food here on Earth or in space. Um, one other aspect of the system that's very important is aeroponics allow you to grow any type of fruit or vegetable, all right? Whereas with hydroponics, you really are uh, forced to either grow leafy greens or herbs. Those are the only things, and, and hydroponics, which it's fascinating, the, our system can be flipped over to a hydroponic mode too. So even though it's primarily aeroponics that we've been perfecting, our system can function aeroponics, hydroponics, even aquaponics which means that you have fish or prawn in the system, that their, that their emulsions, that their waste is actually the fertilizer that then feeds the plants. So even though we focus on aeroponics, and that is where the NASA technology comes in, the systems are actually made to be multimodality to where you can actually use them. You can even fill those chambers with dirt and just have the water going into the dirt as well. So, uh, but again, going back, the aeroponics is the most efficient, and it allows you to grow the widest variety of plants. You can even grow potatoes. You can grow potatoes, sweet potatoes, corn, carrots, onions. I personally have grown jalapenos, 
bell peppers, tomatoes, cucumbers, okra, uh, and the leafy greens and the herbs. So really, um, that is where the, the NASA component of the technology comes into. And it, even more so, we've been looking at combining uh, old NASA experiments where they've... So let me bring it back. NASA actually stopped using aeroponics in space because and aquaponics because a they were having a problem with how to collect the water which now they've they've solved with with different vacuum technologies and then one of the other one of the other things reason they didn't use aquaponics is because fish don't do well in space their bones they 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 don't they aren't as healthy the grab the lack of gravity affects the fish's uh, resiliency and their ability to breed but NASA has done experiments with eels in space, and eels don't have any bones. So we have been proposing experiments now, taking the eels and using their emulsion, which you can do. The Japanese did it for thousands of years in their own aquaponic gardens in, in Japan. And through our own research, we discovered that. And so one of the one of the experiments we've been proposing for a while is to do an aquaponic system and attempt those experiments in space, but replace the fish with eels. So there's a lot of exciting capabilities with this technology. There are a lot of applications that can be done for in space, low, low gravity conditions, and here on Earth. And the good news is, is a lot of those experiments have been done in different aspects in different places. Nobody's had the opportunity yet to bring it all together. And that's one of the things that we're doing here at Eden. That's great. So <clears throat> you're working with NASA um, and they're looking at it for, for different locations. And obviously, you know, we, we have a tendency, I do the same thing. We, we generalize and we say in space and, and you got it right at the end there where it's like in a microgravity environment, there's one set of challenges. But once you're in a gravitational field, let's say one sixth gravity on the moon, one third gravity, Earth's gravity on Mars, a lot of these challenges probably go away, or at least they're they're lessened proportionally, right? Um, yes. Because you have something to, let's say, pull things down uh, and that kind of thing, the gravity for the bones, whatever. Um, I'm pretty sure we haven't tested, you know, growing fish in moon gravity, for example. Um, we'll get there. Um, there's a whole conversation to be had about what we haven't done on the space station yet. But these are things that are coming. We're going to figure that out. Um, so they're looking at it, um, and I also um, gather from what we've been talking about, somebody could buy one of these from you, right? How, how big are they? What's the proportion? So it's, a, it's, it's two feet by four feet by 7.5 feet. It's kind of, like, I would say, about the size of a large bookshelf, like one of your bookshelves that are on either side of you behind you. They're very similar in size to that. What's really cool about the systems is that so we've done a lot of analysis. We spend a lot of time analyzing what's going on in the industry, what's going on in the private sector, what's going on in academia, what's going on with NASA, because we want to make sure that we're always at the forefront of the different technologies and how that they can all be pieced together. Um, one of the things that we've identified within the landscape of what's commercially available here on Earth is that there's essentially a spectrum. And at one end of the spectrum, you have private towers, which are individual standalone towers, like kind of like this, that are very popular. There are a lot of suburban moms that are buying them, that they put them in their kitchen and, and people that want to be 
um, eco-conscious or, or have a little bit of more food security. And so they buy these towers. And, but the problem is, is the towers are using the hydroponic technology and it's only one tower. So you basically can get like maybe a salad a month out of it. All right. But those products are popular. So that's one end of the spectrum. At the whole other end of the spectrum are mega companies that you see like 100,000 square foot facilities and racks going to the ceiling. And you see like, oh my God, they spent $20 million or $40 million on the development of that facility. And it's, it's people in clean suits because the whole thing's wired together. And if one bit of bacteria gets into the system, they have to shut the whole thing down and start the whole thing over again. Very capital intensive. Walmart, Google, Amazon, they're the ones that are doing this because they're planning on building these giant mega farm facilities in the center of cities and tying them right into their distribution networks. Again, whether it's Walmart or Google or, you know, drones flying from out of Bezos's motherships, you know, delivering it. And that's their whole concept is greater integration, vertical integration, greater economy of scale. You know, they're controlling it all. OK, so those are the two ends of the spectrum. Those are kind of limited choices. And that was what we identified. And again, they were doing hydroponics. They were trying to ask the question, how do you make more money in today's market off of selling that? We weren't asking that question. We came at it from a completely different standpoint. Now, because we were trying to design for something completely different, we were asking the question, how do you make a farming system that can function in multiple places, environments, locations at the end of the supply chain. All right. How do you make a farming system that can operate off on its own for the longest amount of time and still be efficient? Now, because we were asking it from that standpoint, we, of course, approached it from a different technological standpoint and wound up with other solutions. But guess what? Our solutions outcompete all of those solutions. Now, what was our solution? Our solution was, was to make a modular, scalable system utilizing the aeroponics and designed not to be vertically integrated into Walmart's or Amazon's shipping distribution network in the center of a city. But what about the rural community out in the middle of nowhere? What about the remote Air Force or Space Force base that only gets resupply every three months? out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean? What about the luxury hotel in the Bahamas or ski resort in the mountains or the oil rig out in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico or simply homesteaders or preppers that wanted to be out in the middle of nowhere or even in their cities and have the capability of knowing that they didn't have to be dependent on anyone else? In all of those scenarios, the solution is not to offer them a single tower, not to make them spend 20 or $40 million on a 100,000 square foot facility, but in making a modular, scalable system that they could determine what their needs were. And then because the system's modular, we can go in to an old building. We can go into old service places, power wash them, clean them off. Because with our systems, again, because they're modular, if you do have infection, you're able to isolate that one tower in the system and contain the the infection without having to shut down the rest of the system so that ends up competing with all of the things that everyone else can do but in a much more efficient way and then their system is plugged into our back end so our artificial intelligence that we've been developing 
monitors the system. They can be plugged into our cloud as well and have the service of being plugged into our watchdog to where we literally have a control center that we're right there with you. We're monitoring the system. We're watching it. We're working with the AI. Because the idea, the concept of what Eden is trying to do is to make vertical indoor farming cheap, easy, efficient, and most importantly, turnkey without thinking. People don't have the time to go and learn all of these things, but we do. And so we've made the relationships with the NASA scientists. We've made the relationships with the major universities. We've developed the technology so that you can have the power of having your own indoor vertical farm that can be at whatever scale and size you need, but that it's easy. It's five minutes of work a day while the app and while we have mapped out literally everything. So you tell us what you want, and then we give you the power to do it. Well, amen, my green brother. I, uh, I'm sold. And uh, <laughs> you're a heck of a pitch man, my friend. All right, we're going to come back and uh, talk about some more uh, spacey things. Um, and uh, by the way, before we go, real quickly, how much is one of these if I wanted to buy it? Uh, the towers go, there's actually five different modalities. They go from about 2500 up to $4,000 per unit. Um, and again, it's just, there's some that are made, there's about five of them. There's some that are made for the root vegetables. There's some that are made for the vine vegetables. This one behind me is kind of the middle one that's made to be a little bit more variable. You can do a little bit of everything in it. So yeah, between two and $5,000. Right. And one of those would feed roughly real quick before we go. So whenever we were doing the analysis for the U.S. Army, they, they actually brought up a really good point. So it if you wanted to live solely off the towers, I'm going to lock you in a room with one of these. This is all you're going to get. Then you need three to four towers per human. But if you're utilizing the tower as part of a balanced meal, that you're still buying bread and meat and cheese and things outside of your vegetables, then you actually only need 1.5 towers per human. Got it. So it really all depends right. on on which way you're trying to take it. And then there's also, you know, obviously other things for commercial if you're trying to do commercial, because then you just want to monocrop and grow one thing and sell it. Got it. Very cool. All right. You're listening to IROC Space Radio. This is the Space Revolution. I'm Rick Tomlinson, and this is our guest, Bart Womack. We'll be right back, spacers. All right, my space cadet friends, you are back with IROC Space Radio listening to the space revolution my name is rick tomlinson we're with bart womack who's the ceo of eden grow systems so bart um i love what one of the things that i i liked about your company initially was again that you're what they might call dual use or that you are um you're space oriented but you also have a terrestrial mark which, by the way, for those investors out there, if you're going to be investing in space, try and make sure you find companies that do that. Uh, that's a quicker, different rate of return uh, regarding terrestrial businesses as, as you're going to get in space. Are there any near-term pathways that you're looking at in the next few years to be able to get one of your systems actually out there? Hmm. Well, first, let me, let me say something. And this is something that I see that, that is prevalent within the entire space community. There is no out there without a here. <laughs> we cannot abandon the earth and we're just going to go find a new place to wreck. All right. Mm -hmm. 
we have to solve our problems at home before we can go buy a second home, right? No one's ready to have their vacation home if their first home is falling apart and on, and on fire. Um, so I, I always have to make that point that, you know, these technologies that we're developing for out there, it's to help us here. And that the vision that I've always had is that the earth is like a garden and that our lifeline, our vines will grow out from that garden and grow into space and allow us to go. But we will always have a connection to here on earth. I, I fundamentally believe that. Mm -hmm. um, now, what was I'm sorry, I had I said that. And then well, I yeah. so look, um, since you brought it up, we're, we're going to touch on this a little bit. We don't want to get into a. Uh, uh, a debate because I think you and I are basically on the same side. Uh, one of the points I like to make is we do both. Uh, we're not waiting for perfection before we go. Um, it is by going out there that we become better at who we are. And, um, you know, my, my favorite example of that is when I was asked by a college student at one of my lectures, um, uh, and they made the point that, you know, we need to wait until we solve our problems here before we go out there. Uh, because we're just not mature enough. No, it's both. Yeah. I, it's both. There's, There's both, an interplay. Right? Yeah. yeah. And my response to the the young lady at the time was, so when did you move out of your parents' house? Did you wait until you were fully formed? Or did you become an adult by moving? So I don't think that's what you meant. I know. I know. Yeah, what no, 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 no. What you just said, that's the answer. Because exactly mm -hmm. by pushing the boundaries, we do grow. And these technologies that NASA did that we've brought back down to Earth it wouldn't have happened if NASA wasn't trying to figure out how do we go out there more efficiently. So no, I we're simpatico. It's exactly yeah, I, I think, exactly. Let's, agree. let's take on let's take on that one for just a second too. I think you know we we talk about spinoffs, et cetera, et cetera, and they are all around us. I mean, there were elements in the path of you and I having this call and people listening to it, et cetera, et cetera, that purely came out of the, the space program. But this this kind of a technology is certainly got a lot of roots in some of the early NASA work, correct? Oh no, a hundred percent. I mean, our tech, the aeroponic technology that we utilized was developed by Dr. Raymond Wheeler and Dr. Gary Stute, who have both been instrumental in advising us, helping us further perfect the technology. Without their guidance um, and interest, we never would have made it this far. Dr. Stute actually joined us last year as the head of plant research after leaving NASA for 20 years as the as the head of plant research. So no, there is a direct line from NASA, the technology, even the men that that developed it and our ability to leverage their research and their work here on Earth and continue to perfect it. Mm -hmm. And um, and by the way, just for fun, I have to toss in one of, one of my pet peeves um, about the Martian is uh, the movie um, that, and I actually expressed this uh, to the author and uh, you know, is that if they had actually been building a human settlement on Mars and they were like two or three missions in, which is the presumption in the film, you know, they've, they've already been there. They're, they're just building up on it. Um, and they were thinking the way you and I are thinking, he wouldn't just have potatoes. You know, the idea was that they had potatoes because they were planning like a Thanksgiving dinner. And so he grows those and he lives off those. If they had been thinking permanent and if they'd been thinking green, if they'd been thinking eco, they'd been thinking, 
uh, yeah, gross. He would probably have had a bunch of these, you know, in his pods up there, right? I mean, he would be like, he'd be living living pretty good. One, you know, one guy um, with like probably dozens of these these uh, eating gross systems, right? I mean, definitely. Yeah, it's, it's the idea that, uh, you know, they it, it, that kind of thing, people don't think about it, but having this this wide range of nutrition, um, the interaction, by the way, with plants, which we know is psychologically stimulating, uh, all of that plays into it. Fresh vegetables going all the way back to our beginning of our conversation rather than eating a stick, you know, or sipping a, some exactly. colored liquid yeah. through a straw that you... You know, it's people, it's people. Yeah. <laughs> it's really like green. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, I, uh, I so I, I think that what you've got going is, is great because you do have this amazing synergy between earth and space. I also know that you yourself are a planet thinker. You're, you're a, uh, a green thinker in your own way. You, um, you're, you're certainly, you and I have had a couple of conversations where I know that you are, um, you and I share a lot of beliefs in terms of humanity and life and, and that kind of thing. Is that something that you're feeling you're expressing through the company? Um, and Oh, and uh, I mean, a hundred percent, you know, about, about that. What, what I, what I, everything in my worldview comes down to what I call the great question. And I, I bring this up anytime I get an opportunity to speak is everything now becomes about the great question of our time. And the great question of our time is, is will technology be utilized to set humanity free or will technology be utilized to control them to a greater degree than ever imagined? And every situation we deal with technologically, sociologically, in my, in my perception, can actually be reduced to that question. Is, is this creating a free and human future or is this creating a more controlled and dominated future? And at the very center of that question is how, where, uh, when we get our food. Because food is the basis of civilization. You know, when, when people started farming in the Fertile Crescent 11,000 years ago, that was when religion and history and science and philosophy and theater all are birthed because for the first time, human beings weren't having to spend all of their time foraging for food. So food and how we get it determines everything. It, it, so from my perspective, you know, as much as I, I love, you know, the big corporations, you know, the fact is, is, is now, and, and actually the, the crisis point we've reached in history with this food situation, even it offers us a choice that we get to make a choice. Now we can live in a world where everything is supplied for us. Everything is given to us, but whoever gives that and supplies that determines how we live, or we can live in a world where we take back our power where we become self-sufficient, we become self-sustaining as individuals, families, and communities. And guess what? The most interesting aspect of this, and I always make sure to make, to make this point as well, to all my friends on the right and all my friends on the left, is our solutions, the solution of leveraging this technology and creating next-generation farming systems at the community level address every single real 
political problem we're facing today, whether you're talking about the environment, whether you're talking about equity, whether you're talking about food security, whether you're talking about health, all of it is solved by creating next generation farming systems at the community level, because it's more efficient with resources. It's more environmentally efficient because you're not spraying pesticides, herbicides all over the environment, which then are leaching into the soil, killing off the, all of the healthy biomes that, that might not be as, as functional for growing plants, but are and very important for a continued life on the planet. And you're not poisoning the oceans. And when you give communities the power to grow their own food, now instead of the money from that food going out of the community into mega corporations or farms or trade networks that span the entire earth. Now that money, those resources can stay in those communities. And then also guess what? When you have times of catastrophe, when you have times when the supply chain breaks down, when you have times of civil disorder, now, instead of having centralized food networks that are in one hard spot here and there that can be affected by disruption, you've created a net that's everywhere that allows communities to absorb impacts, to absorb disruption. And then the communities around it can surge their resources instead of having to wait for aid coming from thousands of miles or other countries to come and help them. Right. So, yeah, it's interesting. One of the suppositions that I like to put out there is that in a way we're, as we're moving out off planet, and, and these technologies don't just stay off planet. I mean, we're talking about something you can use on the earth right here. Um, our ability to be completely independent is going to grow those, those groups that go out there. If you combine uh, unlimited space resources, unlimited solar energy, um, the ability to grow a wide variety of your own food, um, additive manufacturing, the ability to 3D print anything you need, you put all that together, and pretty soon you're getting to a point where individual groups, tribes, whatever you want to call them, of human beings are going to have the ability and freedom to go do whatever they want, wherever they want. And um, I find that fascinating because it's almost like we're going full circle back to the original hunter-gatherer um, groups, you know, that, that lived back in the day, uh, 30, 40,000 years ago. Um, by the way, there is a, um, there's a great book. Um, I'm going to put it out here. It's called uh, the beginning of everything. And, um, it's really worth reading, uh, where they challenge <clears throat> a lot of our assumptions about, you know, we have this idea that small tribal groups were, you know, crude and, uh, you know, very uh, bestial living, you know, living on the ground just grabbing nuts and worms and stuff like that. It turns out that um, they were all, all kinds of them. They were all over the place. They were doing all kinds of social experimentation, um, all kinds of hierarchies, all kinds of different kinds of things they were into. And I think we're going to get that as we move out, out there. So one of the tools that you're actually creating, or you're actually creating a tool right now, that is actually going to enable people to be more independent because we've centralized so much. You see this in the energy too, right? I, mm -hmm. uh, one of the big thrills this last week was going to my dad's house and seeing they put solar on their roof. And I'm thinking, yeah. So when the grid breaks down, you and I being in Texas, we know what that's like. When the grid breaks down next time, they're going to be independent. So if you add that 
to your food system. Exactly. Whether you're on that's, Earth. That's literally the Eden's, Eden's mission motto is to provide food and energy independence on Earth and one day off of it. That is there literally you. what we're doing. It is to design systems that offer food and energy independence. Perfect. You know, the tower is only one component of what's called the Genesis system. The Genesis mm. system that is also patented and based on NASA technology as well is a system that you can drop anywhere on Earth or one day off of it. Within four to six weeks, it's producing its own food, its own water, its own power, its own fertilizer, recycling all of its own waste. And you can even lock people inside of it. And it's producing enough oxygen for them to breathe. So wow. Eaton is a farming company in the first stages, but we've built the Genesis system. We just honestly, to be blunt, we didn't have the, the capital and the funds when COVID hit. We had to make a decision because we were building the first production candidates of the Genesis system. And when COVID hit, we had to make a decision because we had limited funds of pulling one part of that system out. And so we had a whole you know, process that we worked through and we said, okay, what is the most valuable component that we can go to market with the quickly, the quickest, show that there's a market that already exists, show that products like this exist. And it was the farming component. But the farming component fits into this other component that it truly is a full life support system. That's what we're really building. Because again, whether it's Antarctica, a desert, an island, low earth orbit, Mars, the moon, how do you design a farming system that can operate the least amount of time without resupply and utilize the less, least amount of human and electrical energy? It's the same dynamics. It's always the same question. How do you create a life support system? And my vision for the future, honestly, is a world where every home, every community has its own life support system that's just plugged in into the infrastructure of the home and the community. That way, no matter what happens, the grid goes down, food supplies go down, it's a bad year for crops, it's a bad year for rain, it's a bad year for fertilizer. All of those things happen. And unfortunately, as the world is becoming more complex, the models that we referenced at the beginning have proven to be correct. For our foreseeable lifetime, for the next 10 or 20 years, the world is going to continue to become chaotic. The old system that, that, that allowed easy capital flows and stability, the post-World War II period, that period is over. COVID ended that period. Globalization as we know it is over. And it's not going to come back. There will be no return. I mean, you can even just look at the demographics of populations, growth and decline across the planet and the effects that those demographic uh, uh, those demographics are even going to have on the future of the world. Mm -hmm. We have exited the period. The post-World War II period is over. What all the models predicted was that as that period ended, things would become more chaotic. All right. Okay. So and that leads back to the original to the final question. As this chaotic period continues to progress, mm -hmm. do we embrace authoritarianism and centralization because it's an easy answer? Or do we take our power and autonomy and create a free humanity that is ready to go and pursue the stars on its own terms? Those are the questions, and that's what these technologies allow us to do. And grow its own tomatoes. And grow its own tomatoes. There you go. All right. And I'm going to give that several tomatoes right there. Um, so we're going to wrap up this section. We're going to come back in just a minute for our final 
piece of conversation with Bart Womack. You're listening to iRock Space Radio, and uh, my name is Rick Tomlinson on the Space Revolution. Welcome back, Space Cadet People of Earth. We are iRock Space Radio, and this is the Space Revolution with Bart Womack, CEO of Eden Grow Systems and obvious space philosopher or civilization philosopher. Um, I was going to ask you a lot about your, your, your early childhood and who influenced you the most and all that, but we're getting down to the last section here. Um, just real quick, uh, who got you thinking about space? Where did that come from in your Genesis? No pun intended. So I think in about 2014, I met this wild guy. And he was all about space and like, and that, that was the whole period that I was leaving entertainment behind. And I saw this guy, you know, that he had been having this profound influence on space and culture because he was talking about the big ideas. Mm -hmm. And I realized I could be just like that guy that, that it was about passion and it was about how much you were willing to bet on the future and shaping a positive future. Um, and he liked to wear all black, just like me. So it was, it was real easy for me to, to, uh, to look at that guy's example and to, to see that there was a, a real future in space and that this technology and, the, and the, the way the technology and the future and our approach to it and the conversation that we were going to have about it, mm -hmm. that, you know, this guy was smart, but he wasn't a, an engineer or a scientist. He just could see the future. He could see the future, and he understood that the conversation about the future was where the future began. And so that guy, he really inspired me, and that was when I really started to to walk on this journey into space. I, I can't, I can't remember his name right now, though. Yeah, I just, who was that guy? I know. It's, guy. Blank, I don't it's know. blanking on me. It's totally Whatever. Blanking. Whatever. Uh, if you want to be like that guy even more, you'd have to shave your head, Bart. You, you got to find that hair, bro. Anyway, um, yeah, I felt that one coming when you started talking about wearing black. Um, so yeah, and and I and I really appreciate that. That's that's very kind of you. Um, what I'm curious about this this is the heavy this is a heavy question, Bart. Are you ready for it? So I want you to imagine you're um, ooh, let's say you're floating. You're in a spacecraft and you're coming over the surface of Mars at high speed, but you're close enough where you can like get that sense of motion down below and you're just rocking along. Maybe you're going between the Val Marinaris and uh, some other place where humans might build a, a city on Mars or under Mars. You're just cruising along. You reach the dash of your space racer, let's say, and you want to listen to something. What would you tune in on, Mr. DJ? You know, it's the same when I walk into when at my house. It's actually I'm I'm rebuilding it right now, but um, in my house, you know, I have three or four of these towers out in my garage, and when I'm growing stuff out there, and I walk out, and I honestly I really love to listen to choir like old Gregorian monks and orchestra music the ethereal i really love that's what i would watch and and it's it's interesting mm -hmm. even when you think about it 
the, the, the beauty and the awe that you would feel in that moment of being on that spaceship and seeing the Vista in front of you, even though it's completely a million miles away, literally from that garden, it evokes the same emotion. Mm-hmm. It is when we cool. stand at the, at the pillars of creation itself, whether you're looking out into a little garden or you're standing on top of a mountain or you're in a spaceship looking at, you know, the crab nebula, mm-hmm. they all evoke the same humility and awe, but also uh, the, the childlike love of the magnificent that can be seen in the macrocosm or the microcosm. And so I think that the only kind of music that I ever can picture in that moment, listening to seeing that is ethereal, uh, like emotionally ethereal music that inspires us to the highest degree. So it would be classical music or choir music, probably monks from like the 15th century, you know, kind of like that. That's just what fits that moment. For Got me. it. So um, what's your favorite science fiction book? If you have one. There's too many. To, oh, you got it. Can I do th- three? Uh, yeah, why not? <laughs> um, Dune. It's not a test, dude. I just, I love Dune. I loved the book. It was a, it was a really great book. Um, had so many amazing messages in it. Uh, Ender's Game. Of I loved course. Ender's Game. That was, uh, you know, I, I read all these when I was a young man and I was more militaristic. So I probably has some kind of, kind of influence on, on why I, I like those so much. Um, and uh, Arthur C. Clarke, he wrote the sequel to 2010. I can't remember what year it takes. I think it's 2063 or something like that, where it, it finishes off the story and kind of, you know, Hal comes back as this extra dimensional being that's with, the astronaut and it, it, it was really fascinating and, and kind of had a, a, had a big effect on, on me as well. Like when I was looking at the future and technology. So I would say those three. Great. Great. Well, look, I, I, um, I think I told you before the call, we have to be careful about dating this thing, but I, I you've mentioned Ender's game. And uh, uh, so if you're hearing this before October 28th, um, Orson Scott cards coming to new worlds and. Are you serious? Yeah. Oh, I loved your expression. I wish they could have seen that. That's um, awesome. No, yeah. that's amazing. I, I, yeah, I, we, have, uh, we have him and Daniel Suarez, who's a new space writer, and uh, um, they're going to be getting a new award that we're giving out um, called the Odyssey Award for Science Fiction Literature at the Space Cowboy Ball. So look that up, newworlds.space, since I had to go there. Uh, Maybe we'll cut this out for the podcast version later or something. I don't know. Anyway, uh, that's great. Uh, Favorite science fiction movie or TV show? Either way. I mean, it's, uh, I I mean, okay, hang on, hang on. We have a rule here. Sorry. Star Wars is a fantasy set in space. Give me a science fiction movie or TV show. And I love Star Wars. No, 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 no. I get it. Um, So just science, I mean, to, just 2001 by Stanley Kubrick. I mean, is, is that, I mean, Perfect. but is that fiction? Is that too? Yeah, that's fancy? science fiction. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You're going to get points um, on that. I mean, you know, they can't see it, but the poster is behind me on the wall. I mean, you know, maybe. Yeah. You, I mean, maybe it was I just, it was so. Program you here. 
it was so beautiful. It was just so beautifully done. And then some of the questions that it asks at the end when he goes to the, you know, which I honestly didn't understand until, you know, his son, um, no, Kubrick's son, no, Mm -hmm. Kubrick's daughter, Kubrick's daughter. She's done some interviews in the last couple of years where she kind of broke down um, some of the themes that I honestly, as much as I consider myself an aficionado, I hadn't understood because that, that last scene really had always kind of confused me what it really meant. Um, and she really broke down what it, what it meant. And once you, once she explained it, it made total sense, but. Um, right. Well, but that's yeah, one of the movies, uh, one of the movies where you should read the most movies, read the book after the movie, the movie serves as a trailer for the book. 2001 is one of the few where you should read the book first because they fill in like, you know, what's happening, you know, when you're just hearing the, ethereal music and stuff but yeah it's interesting yeah. you it's interesting you've chosen that sort of grand theme of, of 2001 and your choice of music was kind of in that same realm of awe because this is about awe for you isn't it this is this is about the wonder and beauty of these things that we're we're opening ourselves up to by breaking out of the planet that's kind of where you come from right as a hundred percent no i mean i'm i i am a spiritual person i am a i'm a christian and i really believe that that uh space is the heavens i mean it's literally it's 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 some of the most inspiring kind of uh, to touch the heavens i mean it's that's what it is we're doing you know i don't view space as this cold abstraction that i think um it's very easy to to view when you start to approach it from a technical standpoint and so much of our interactions with it on a technical standpoint we can get we can get lost very quickly but i mean to touch the stars, I mean, is the is the greatest of human achievements to to, you know, uh, what is it? Slip the surly bonds of of Earth and to reach reach beyond. I mean, the only thing I think that can eclipse that, honestly, is our own uh, mental, spiritual experience as consciousness itself, you know. But to me, um, it, even when people go up into space, you know, what that what is it called? The Earth effect or whatever it is when people view the Earth from Over space effect, and it, it yeah. completely changes their perspective. I mean, this is ethereal. This is evolution. These are the highest principles in the human experience. They call to us in the most profound ways of our soul, you know? And so, you know, I get chills talking about it right now. You know, it's like I approach it from a reverence and an awe of the experience um, and of the endeavor, just what it even means, if that makes sense. Yeah, of course it makes perfect sense to me. And I'm sure to at least one of our listeners out there. <laughs> I, I think anybody who's listened this far into the show gets it totally. And, um, you know, if they're still here, they're on board um, yeah, or they're swimming for sure, whatever. Um, so look, one of the great things about your story is how late you got into this and you came, you know, from a very different angle, a couple of different angles, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you say to somebody is kind of getting towards our last couple of questions here. What would you say to somebody who's listening, who doesn't come from the space field that, that comes from something completely different, you know, and they just happen to have accidentally heard the show or they're, you know, they're listening. They've gotten a little fascinated because Bart, the DJ has now gone into agriculture and space. What would you say to them? It's all about passion. I mean, all of life is about passion. 
And I mean, you know, there's a there was a meme I think I saw a decade ago, which is if you spend three years, if you dedicate yourself for three years to a single source of study, you will become an expert on that field, whatever it is. It is never too late. Whatever impassions you, whatever drives your soul, that's what you should be doing. And you should never listen to yourself or anyone else that tells you you can't do it. Uh, you know, half joking, you know, Rick and I are a thousand percent examples of that is when you really boil it down. The truth is, Rick, is you and I are nerds that are super enthusiastic about the fields that we have chosen to pursue. And if you spend a long enough time being a nerd and nerding out on something that you love, you know, no bragging. I mean, I sit and I talk with world-class scientists from the top universities from NASA. I work with engineers, you know, and when they first meet me and talk to me, the amount of information I have and breadth of understanding I have of the field, they think I'm a scientist. They, you know, they regularly think I'm one of them. And it's just because, you know, I might not have a degree in this, but I've spent so much time researching it and trying to understand it that I know exactly the field, what it means, where it's going, who the people are, who they were and who they're going to be. Mm -hmm. Just just like you, Rick, um, you know, I mean, your background, I, you know, I mean, you've accomplished great things in the in the space industry. Some of the first legislation that was ever written to allow this entire industry to take form. And, you know, you never brag about that or talk about that, but you are part of the keystone that actually shifted the entire, you know, future of space in the United States because of that legislation. That legislation is what made it possible for Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. Those guys should be, you know, I sound like I'm pandering to you now, but they should be giving you awards because the, their fortunes are built on that simple work. But that shows the power of the enthusiast, the empower of the dreamer, the power of the person that believes and truly loves what they're what they're talking about to shift entire realities, to shift entire futures, to create trillions of dollars in economic value because there was one guy in one place at the right time who really loved what he was doing who said, "What if?" Mm, that good. is the power. And so anyone else that wants to do anything whether it's you know, making balloons or building rockets to another dimension. If they believe in it and they apply themselves, they will change the world. I love that. And you're the first guest that read my instructions that said you have to praise me once every segment. So we'll get your check to your, 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 your digital payment uh, for doing that. And uh, no, seriously, very, very humbling. Um, and, um, but you're right. You know, we, we come from very backgrounds, uh, but we have one goal. You know, and my my typical statement is we're here to go there. And and by the way, on the way there, we find ourselves here, which the, is the, the point journey. Exactly. exactly. All the way through the show. Bart, amazing. Great conversation. Um, I, I love that even though we had a couple of notes that we're going to talk about this and that, we ignored most of them and uh, and had an even better time by doing so. Um, and uh you, I, I wish you very well. I am going to encourage people to look up uh, EdenGrowSystems.com. Take a look at your systems. Start growing yourselves some vegetables. And uh, off we go, man. Thank you. Up, Thank up you, brother. I'll see you out there. See you out there, brother. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Space Revolution Podcast with Rick Tumlinson, a production of iRock Space Radio. Go to iRockSpaceRadio.com for more.